Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot, and sitting opposite me is Liam. How's it going, dude? I'm fine. <laughs> Just fine. We do this bullshit every week. I'm standard good. I'm okay. There's no other intro, really, is there? You're no. never going to say, no, I'm terrible. I wish, I, you know, I'd be better off with a few million quid in the bank in a three-story house, but I don't oh, yeah. have but I don't, I don't have that because I'm neither a drug dealer and I haven't, or I haven't amassed enough legitimately. So, you know, oopsie daisy. <laughs> Maybe one day. Who knows what the future holds? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Indeed, you could see me on the front page of the Sun. <laughs> Coke, oh, not the Sun. Co- sure. Coke Baron smuggles. Yeah, but if I did something really, really serious and ostentatious, it would land on slap bang on there without any any say so from me so you know what always makes me laugh actually these crop up every few years is some idiot that won five million quid on the lottery and then it's, it's like three years ago and then they turn up on the front page of the sun going I don't know what happened all my money has gone I'm bankrupt you think what kind of bellend gets five million quid and blows it in three years. Like, how yeah. particularly thick do you have to be? Well, I've, I've number one, uh, I've always shared that sentiment as well. Number two, and maybe this betrays something unpleasant about me, but I always shake my head and tusk-tusk at couples or even lone individuals who win serious jackpots, and then they reveal it to anyone. Yeah, that's Don't reveal it to yeah. anybody. Don't be that you person know? standing there with the big bottle of champagne and the huge check. If you, You're just going to get a queue outside your front door, aren't you? If you if you win that amount of money, if you deep down in your heart, if you don't feel like giving a red cent to anyone, just don't do it. I did see a guy in Mexico that I thought was very clever. He he won the lottery and he went and did the press conference, but he was wearing like a luchador mask to protect his identity. I thought particularly in Mexico, that seems like a very sensible idea, actually. It is. No, I mean, that that is definitely the second best option. The first best option is still just don't tell anyone whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Don't tell anyone. You know, you can't objectively guarantee that even the people you love the most won't fucking rat you out and say, hey, you'll never guess what happened to such and such. Don't tell anybody. Be a, <laughs> be a selfish fuck. Anyway, anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a nastier side to my character you may have been hitherto unaware of. You know? <laughs> uh, well, this week I am hot. Um, well, your SO obviously thinks you're very hot. Well, absolutely. Otherwise, she'd have booted your ass out. She's she's very possibly the only one. Uh, <laughs> I had my coronavirus vaccine yesterday, and as a result, today I have the sweats and a bit of hay fever as well. So if you do hear me hacking and dying, or my voice sounds a bit different to normal, I do apologise, but normal service will be resumed shortly. So you've already got the summer-bound fuckery to compound. I've got hay fever and the hot weather and my coronavirus vaccine all at the same time, which is wonderful. That's just dandy. I even did a test this morning just to make sure that I wasn't, you know, dying of the, the corona flu, but no, 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 I'm absolutely fine. But if you do hear me hacking away, I apologise. Believe me, I'm absolutely fine. <laughs> <laughs> Okie dokie then, let's kick off with a bit of film news like we normally do. Start off with this article here. Toxic Avenger movie reportedly adds Elijah Wood as its lead villain. This is uh, an article from ScreenRant.com. Elijah Wood will reportedly star alongside Peter Dinklage and Jacob Tremblay as the lead villain in the Toxic Avenger reboot. The Toxic Avenger is a low-budget American superhero film released in 1984. The film meshes the genres of horror, comedy, and action, brings to the screen a campy, gore-filled tale of a weak janitor who transforms into a gruesome superhero after being exposed to toxic chemicals. The film came to be regarded as a cult classic and spawned multiple sequels, a musical production, and a cartoon. 
Reboot of the film has been in the works since 2010. However, the ball didn't get rolling until Legendary stepped in and acquired the filming rights for the movie. Yeah, I mean, I enjoy all of that classic trauma shit, man. I mean, Toxic Avengers, great. Surf Nazis must die. That's another favourite. Never they're, saw that. But they're a really cool as studio. As I understand it, like B-movie cult classic schlock. Oh, absolutely. They, they are like the apex of that of that kind of thing. And the thing with Elijah Wood is, yeah, I'm not I'm not a Lord of the Rings fan. I'm just not. Uh, Green Street is a piece of shit. But he's done, he has like taken some really cool choices. I mean, I, I thought Come to Daddy was a cool film. Uh, I don't feel at home in this world anymore. The Netflix one, that was like quite a nice, mad little surprise. Elijah Wood has thrown his lot in with some weird and interesting stuff. And he's, even though he's a bit of a one-trick pony, i.e. I don't believe him as anything other than a wide-eyed, you know, easily terrified ingenue. He's got, you know, he manages to make it work. And I, I think he's an odd choice for a villain. He's yeah. an odd choice for a villain, yeah. Well, I mean, he's quite doe-eyed, isn't he? I believe in Elijah Wood when he plays somebody who shits his pants very easily. Mm. But um, somebody who is uh, like a serious force to be reckoned with, a genuine nasty piece of work. It doesn't really connect, but stranger things have happened. Who knows? Mm, yeah, I'll be interested you know. to see it. Uh, yeah, definitely interested. Toxic to see Avenger. It. I don't really. I have seen it. I don't really remember much about it. It's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think you did it as a so bad it's good on the premium at some point. It's quite possible, but yeah. yeah but I mean, yeah. Well, I don't. Know, I mean, that would have been a serious, like low. That would have been lot like, pathetically low hanging fruit because um, the Toxic Avenger is an extremely self aware film. All trauma films are. They know exactly. Mm. They you know they don't set out to be anything other than isn't this ridiculous schlock. So, I mean, yeah, The Toxic Avenger is anyone who hasn't seen the original one, you need to track yourself down a copy because it's just um, awesome as long as you're not a pretentious dick who takes themselves uber seriously. It's good. Well, here's hoping the reboot keeps up the uh, the schlocky nature. Of the yeah, original. absolutely. Uh, we reported the other week that Paddington 2, and I believe Black Panther as well, uh, is the thing everybody on film Twitter, etc., was talking about that they'd surpassed Citizen Kane on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Paddington 2, however, has lost its top spot. Oh, really? Yes, um, somebody's put up... Uh, the, the review actually came out a while ago, just wasn't added to Rotten Tomatoes, but a negative review of it. Um, and so there is now a uh, top film of all time on Rotten Tomatoes that is entirely different. Would you like to take a guess as to what is now the top-rated film? Top-rated film on Rotten Tomatoes? Mm -hmm. um, it's none of the ones we covered previously. Is it a very recent one? Relatively recent, and I'll give you a clue. It's animated. Is it one of the Toy Stories? It is, actually. Would you have to hazard a guess as to which one? Is it the third one? There's Toy Story 2. Oh, okay. I would have guessed out of the Toy Stories it would be the third Toy one. Toy Story 2 is the one with uh, the villainous prospector and stuff, isn't yeah, it? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they sort of expanded it out a bit, which I don't think I've seen since it came out. But I remember it being, compared to 1 and 3, I would say, from my memory, that's actually one of the, the weaker of the three. Really? Yeah, I, I could be remembering it. Right, I don't remember it being a bad film at all, but you know, in you comparison got... to the brilliance of one and three. Well, I mean, for for me, the the first one just is. I'm not just saying it because it's the first one. I do believe that the 1995 Toy Story is, without equivocation, the best. I did really enjoy the second and third installments as well. Mm. Then I remember you um, giving the rundown of uh, well, what was the fourth one? Is it fucking Sporky or whatever the hell? Yes, it is. Sporky. <laughs> it was just like it, it was a weird one. Yeah, I, I, did, I did quite enjoy it, but it genuinely goes for like a, a Dawn of the Dead horror movie yeah. vibe in the middle of it, which, which I thought I, was really strange. I just really like um, in the third movie. I just like how you know Ned Beatty. Yeah, as um, lots of hugging bear. Yeah. 
I thought, I thought that was just a really great antagonist. Yeah, you know, yeah. They've, just, they've always had a little sort of hint of the darkness in there as well. Yeah, I remember but, uh, pointing very, out, you know, very strong hint. I mean, the, the first one's got Sid and all the yeah the mutilated toys and all of that. Then always yeah. yeah dark themes. Well, that's the thing. In context, Sid is basically like a fucking Joseph Mengele. Yeah, it's pretty brutal stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, they sort of went for the Holocaust in the third one as well, which was really, really, really odd. Anyway, yes, I, line I, up, kids. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I. I I would say out of the Toy Stories, I would expect it to be three or one in the top slot. But anyway, Toy Story 2 is now, according to Rotten Tomatoes, the best film of all time. And as we covered previously, this means nothing. Yeah, absolutely nothing. But hey-ho. I think it's probably a better <laughs> shout, actually, than Paddington 2, which I did enjoy, but definitely does not deserve to be on the top slot of all time. The Toy Story films, at the very least, you know, uh, modern classics, I would say. Yeah, but yeah, you know, as we've said, the... Just about any algorithm is like a lot of bullshit. So. Yes, it's, it's, it's broken. It's entirely it broken. Is, it is. Article from Cinema Blend here that uh, caught my eye because I thought you might be interested. Stephen King uh, reveals horror movie he had to stop because it was too freaky. Okay. Yeah, this is from an interview he did uh, a little while ago. And apparently this was a horror film that he was watching while he was in hospital. So it sort of skews the metric a little bit because, you know, you're going to be a bit more vulnerable at that point. Anyway, but would you like to hazard a guess as to what horror film was so freaky that Stephen King had to stop it? Oh, God, is it like fucking sinister or something? No, a little bit earlier than that. It's uh, The Blair Witch Project. Fair enough. Fair enough, yeah. I mean, I thought that initially, thinking, oh, The Blair Witch Project isn't that scary, but then... I thought back to the first time I watched it and I was probably about 12 or something like that. But once you've seen the film and you know that absolutely nothing really happens, then it's not very scary at all. But I remember when I did watch it for the first time, as you're getting that suspense build up, it was a pretty freaky experience. So I can sort of see, yeah, see where he's coming first from. First time watched, so this is the first time he'd ever seen it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a sense of dread that... Um, is helped very nicely by the found footage aesthetic. Yeah, um, the atmosphere was good. I thought it was the, really the first proper big budget um, found footage film as well, wasn't it? So some, something new and something that adds an unpredictable nature to proceed. I suppose it's just because we've spoken about titles before um, in the found footage genre that have like, vastly expanded the, you know, they've really, really um, milked the potential of uh, greatness in the found footage genre. One that springs to mind immediately is Wreck. I would always go for Wreck as my favourite. Yeah. yeah, I liked Wreck too as well. Yeah, so the, see, this is the thing. It's not really so it's sort of retroactively judging the Blair Witch Project. It's a bit, it is a bit unfair because it did... Um, it did break down a lot of barriers. Groundbreaking for its time, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I guess just um, once you've been exposed to, you know, wreck and, and you know, even even the fucking taking of Deborah Logan and the British movie, um, The Borderlands, you go back and watch Blair Witch Project. And it, I don't think it sucks, but, I mean, so scary that it's going to deprive me of sleep or... I, I don't know. I remember the uh, creators of The Mist saying that when they uh, took Stephen to the premiere and they were sitting next to him, there's a bit that made him jump out of his seat and they were so pleased with themselves that they managed to make Stephen King jump. You know, the master of horror fiction. Like, that's going to be an, an achievement. Surely you knew that would happen. Yeah. <laughs> you fucking wrote it. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. That that's the, the only horror film yeah. that Stephen King's actually turned off halfway. That's fair enough. Ooh. And my last article this week, this is a good one though. Um, there has been a leak of Quentin Tarantino's cast wish list for Pulp Fiction. What, does he 
try and say that he got it wrong the first time around. No, no, this is just some documentation that he put together uh, before the film was made, just putting down his uh, ideal cast choices for all the individual parts. I thought it was quite interesting. Mm. Uh, he's got a star system uh, on his notes. So it's three stars for his next to the name for his first choice, two stars for his second choice, and one star for strong possibility. Um, Pumpkin, he always had Tim Roth down as his first choice. Second choice, Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp. Mm. And no third choice on that one. He's got uh, his other options for Pumpkin are Christian Slater, Gary Oldman, Nick Cage, Eric Stoltz, and John Cusack. Mm. Yeah, not sure. I think he made the right <clears throat> casting choice first time with that one. Uh, Honey Bunny went for Amanda Plummer straight away. Vincent, interestingly, his first choice was Michael Madsen. Well, that's the thing, because, um, I mean, they were going to do, he was looking at that, getting that movie uh, the Vega Brothers made, wasn't he? Because, you know, you Vincent and Vic from, like, Dogs and Fiction, respectively, they are brothers. Mm. And he wanted to make the movie with Travolta and Madsen, but then it just, uh, it, 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 like, nobody really worked on it. And by the time people started going, hey, when's that coming out? It's like, they're too fucking old now, man. <laughs> Which is a shame. You know, yeah, fun. absolutely. I still would like to see that filming, but it is, as you said, it's yeah. pretty much impossible. It's like to a couple of years after Please the release. Please don't de-age it either. That's the thing. 1996, 1997, maybe at the most, you could have had Michael Madsen and Travolta in, you know, as Vic and Vincent. That would have been pretty cool. Well, he's got John Travolta down with the two stars next to him, so it was his second choice, but he's actually written next to John Travolta. Strong, strong, strong second choice. <laughs> so he's very, very favourable to Travolta in the role. He's also got Alec Baldwin down as a third choice. Which again is interesting. And uh, Gary Oldman, Andy Garcia, and Michael Keaton as well. I just love this because it's nice to think about the movie with you know, transplanting those actors in place, isn't it? Was Samuel L. Jackson his first, is like one and only choice for Jules then? Or? No, that was a second choice. Uh, so another one of his second choices for Jules was Eddie Murphy. Um, but any, yeah, he's actually got a bit underneath it, Jules saying, no rappers which I think is kind of funny. No rappers. No rappers, yeah. <laughs> uh, but he has got a first choice that obviously never made the film. Three stars next to their name. Any guesses on that one? Um... I'll give you a clue. It's a, a famous triple A-list uh, black Hollywood actor. Denzel? No. Um, okay, so it's not Denzel. Samuel L. Jackson was second choice, you said? Yep, along with Eddie Murphy. Uh, Danny Glover? No, Larry Fishburne. Oh, fuck, Larry Fishburne. That would have been interesting. I, mean, I think Larry Fishburne could have co- pulled that off really, really well. He's got that that sort of intensity that Jules needed. Yeah, Lawrence Fishburne is Jules. I mean, that, that would have definitely been very interesting because he's uh, he's very, very capable of, uh, I'd, I'd say that Fishburne just has like, one of those brilliant singular talents for in you know, infusing dialogue with like, lots and lots of gravitas mm. and uh you know like serious command of attention so yeah that that that's an interesting you know flight of fancy what it could have been here's one i absolutely love uh for winston wolf he's got harvey Keitel down obviously with three stars next to his name and he's written underneath wrote part for harvey if unavailable other possibilities um he's got al pacino he's got alec baldwin he's got michael keaton he's also got danny devito <laughs> And the more I think about it, the more I think Danny DeVito would have been awesome as Winston Wolf. I think he really could have nailed that part. Totally see why he went for Kaito. I and mean, Kaito is the better choice. But I love imagining Danny DeVito in that role. I think, that, I think that's awesome. Uh, quite tellingly, actually, Butch, Bruce Willis, isn't in the names listed, which suggests that that was a, a studio decision to bring some more bankability to the film. 
which is weird because Bruce Willis was fucking excellent as Bush. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it absolutely worked out brilliantly. But that does suggest to me that that was a studio choice in order to put a, a big star in, an extra big star. Who was he then? Um, his first choice was Matt Dillon. Matt Dillon. Yeah, and his other options. were- I do like Matt Dillon a lot. You know, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I, I think it would have worked. His other options were um, Sean Penn, Nick Cage, Aiden Quinn, and again Johnny Depp. Aiden so, fucking hell, Johnny Aiden Depp Quinn. turns up in a lot of these. Actually, it's interesting because, uh, to my knowledge, Depp has never worked with Tarantino. So, no, I don't think so. Certainly, at this phase in uh, in Tarantino's career, he seems to be really eager to work with him, which is intriguing because Tarantino, of course, so he's on a podcast this week. Actually, is. It's been, sort of been in the film news. He's now working on his what is supposed to be his last picture because he considers Kill Bill 1 and 2 to be uh, one film entirely. But he always said that he was only going to make a certain number and then retire at certain age. So he's now working on his last film. And he uh, did a podcast interview this week that was essentially him so, lamenting the fact that so many directors, their last film sucks. And so he's quite aware of the pressure on his shoulders that he's going to finish off his legacy this way. So I get it because... Um... It's going to be two years until Tarantino is sixty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I get. Is that the uh, the the milestone he retirement age? Yeah, is he, I believe if, if memory serves, he wanted to be uh, sixty years old, and he wanted it to be his tenth film. So yeah, he's on track for all of this. Although he was apparently apparently he's been throwing the idea around that perhaps he might just call Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because that turned out great. You know, that would actually be a really good one to end on. And he's now quite nervous about the idea of what if my last film sucks, you know? But yeah, I guess he's in pre-production on something at the moment. He's tight-lipped about it. I think what, if, I mean, his last film. I look, you know, I look forward to seeing what he does next, but I think if he did leave out Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think that the film in and of itself tied in with, you know, that being his swan song. I think that, that would, there would just be something very, very cool and quite poignant about that. Because the film, you know, does have you know a, a, a maniacal, a maniacally genius ending that only could have come from the mind of Tarantino. So, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but who knows? Well, like, Interesting. Who knows I've, I've suddenly just noticed on this as well. Mia Wallace, or famously played by Uma Thurman, of course, uh, she's not in the list of names either. In fact, he's got a long list of actresses for the potential role of Mia. And all of them, uh, well, not all of them, but only some of them have one star each next to their name. So he seemed really undecided. Seems to be a part that he didn't write for a specific actor, as Tarantino often does. Um, some of his suggestions for Mia were um, Virginia Madsen, uh, Patricia Arquette, Pam Greer, Bridget Fonda, Deborah Winger, Robin Wright, Meg Tilly. So he seemed quite undecided on that role. So it's, it's, I love this kind of you know, behind-the-scenes pre-production notes and sort of things because it gives you a real insight into the filmmaker's thought process, doesn't it? See, oh, as, a, as someone who loves Pam Greer... I'm glad he didn't go with Pam Greer, namely because in Pulp Fiction, it is made very clear that uh, Marcellus is ferociously protective of Mia. Mm. And I don't buy Pam Greer playing someone who needs to be looked after by anybody. No, I mean, she's, she's a great actress. <laughs> she's, too, sure. she's too tough. I'm sure she you could know, do it, yeah, but I know what you mean. Her toughness, no, her toughness is one of her strengths. I mean, that in, I mean that in nothing but reverence. She's I don't, great as strong characters. I don't yeah. buy, I wouldn't be able to buy Pam Greer as some sort of delicate trophy wife who needs protection. I think she's too fucking hardcore for that. Although but, there's an element of that to Mia's character. You know, she, she's, although she does overdose, and obviously very famously, she's very much of her own mind, isn't she? So I sort of she's very spirited and yeah. independent-minded, yeah. But I, I don't know, maybe I'm just talking shit. The other interesting one here, of course, is Marcellus Wallace, 
Uh, Ving Rhames was a three-star choice. There's one other three-star choice, and that's Sam Jackson, funnily enough. <clears throat> so I wonder which way round that happened. I wonder whether, you know, once Jules was decided to be Sam Jackson, whether he then picked Ving Rhames or which way round that ended up being. Again, that's one of those roles where you think, Ving Rhames nailed that so, so well. Be, I, I can't see Sam Jackson in that role. I know he could do it, but... Well, everyone, everyone, I think everyone... That, the thing... One of the reasons I think Pulp Fiction is regarded as the classic it is is because everything does sync up so well. All the actors' idiosyncrasies, they sync up with the characters written for them so well. Mm. You know, Samuel L. Jackson has a particular way of ranting and only that would have suited all of the biblical fucking shit fits that he has. You know, so I just think, yeah, it's perfect the way it is, basically. Yeah, I, but you know what? There's always going to be a version of... It's fun to imagine. There's always going to be a version of Pulp Fiction in my head now that has Danny DeVito as Winston Wolf, And I quite like that version. <laughs> well, if, you know, if quantum mechanics is anything to go by, that those versions have been made. To be honest... Multiple I, times over. That is true, actually, yeah. <laughs> the, the multiple quantum infinite universe theory or whatever it is, yeah. <laughs> but to be honest, I'd watch a film where Danny DeVito played every single part, actually. I'll be there day one queuing up for the cinema on that one. I just, I don't think there's anything that man can't do. <laughs> well, they need to, you, what was it? Was it Patrick Stewart who did a one-man version of A Christmas Carol? Yeah, yeah. Someone needs to re revive that with DeVito. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be something. Man. Oh, no, so many possibilities. No, nothing against Pete Stew because he's a fucking legend, but yeah. yeah, Danny DeVito, man. Would absolutely love to see it. Let's crowdfund it. <laughs> oh, as we said, uh, we said it on the premium podcast the other week, didn't we? The Danny DeVito Wolverine film where Danny DeVito plays Logan but it's played just as a straight Wolverine film nobody mentions the fact that it's Danny DeVito or that he's short or anything like that and just play it straight ahead would be, it, need, it needs to happen absolutely needs to happen yes please 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 if anyone's listening that can make that happen please do anyways anyways we have some film reviews to get through this week uh, Liam what are you kicking us off with uh, so let me ask you a question what's your opinion of the Saw franchise uh, I quite enjoyed the first one. Yep. I thought it was kind of original and splashy and vibrant. Uh -huh. And then I only, I think I probably, I saw Saw 2 and Saw 3 and sort of, I didn't, the others I'm sort of aware of on the periphery. I've seen bits of them. They just sort of fell off a cliff. It was like they, they took the concept and they spread it out too far for me. Yeah, I mean, it kind of syncs up with my opinion because I remember seeing the very first Saw back in 2004 and thinking to myself, I find it a little bit derivative of Seven, but for what it's worth, I actually thought that it was a pretty cool movie. Had a style of its own. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed the twists in it. Uh, I, I liked, um, I thought that, it, you know, there was a lot of great attention paid to like the uh, elaborate sadism of Jigsaw mm -hmm. and all of the contraptions that he invents. But it was, it, was a, it was a cool film. It did its job quite, quite thoroughly, I thought. But yeah, then the sequels just degenerated into idiocy. Basically, yeah, it just stretched the concept way too thin. Yeah. I, I ended up sort of rolling my eyes at it. Yeah, it's the most, it's like, how, just how vile can we be? And you Yeah, know, when how, it got into like falling into pits and needles and stuff like that, I thought, well, yeah, you just sort of run out of ideas now, haven't you? It's just, it's schlock at this point and not particularly good schlock. Absolutely right. Well, I watched the ninth instalment in the series a couple of days ago. And this is Spiral, full title Spiral from the Book of Saw. Yes, we covered this on the news. Yes. It was, uh, the cast list was initially announced. Directed by Darren Lee Boozman, who has directed four entries in the franchise, apparently. Which ones were those? I don't know or care. <laughs> <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, this, this is uh, yeah, the spiral from the Book of Saw, taking the ninth film that takes the Saw franchise in a different direction, supposedly. And this film stars Chris Rock as Detective Zeke Banks. Now, Zeke's father, Marcus Banks, is Samuel L. Jackson, of all people. And he is something of a legendary retired police chief on the force. And because of his status, Zeke has not only had a lot of pressure on him professionally because of that, but he it's also made very clear early on that Zeke is also he's one of, if not the only, honest, straight-laced cop on the entire force. And as the film opens, there's a 4th of July parade going on, and some guy is ambling along, kind of sleazily looking at people around a fairground, and somebody rushes past him and uh, steals a woman's purse and hurtles down into a sewer. This individual uh, follows him. When he gets down into the sewer, it's revealed to actually be uh, a railway station, an underground railway station, and the uh, pursuer is promptly uh, bagged over the head, and when he wakes up, he is suspended above the train tracks with uh, a vice. It's like a vice on, on what looks like a tripod, and uh, is clamped down on his tongue, and his feet are resting on a sort of small wooden step ladder beneath him, and a TV set turns on, and it's someone in a pig mask going, Oh, Detective Bart, I want to play a game. It's like, you have lied for your entire life, so if you use your weight to dangle yourself off of the platform, then you will escape free, but with your lying tongue ripped out of your mouth. If you stay where you are, then the train comes and you go splat. You know, choose, make your decision quickly. Mm -hmm. So this initial victim is one of the many bent coppers that surrounds... Back to line of duty. Yeah, that surrounds... You know, we're British, mate, we can't help it. Bent cops. One of the many bent coppers, one of the many filth that uh, surrounds uh, Chris Rock in this um, horrible, corrupt shithole of department. And so Chris Rock starts to receive little packages, little tapes and packages revealing to him that there is a maniac on the loose who is very, very taken with John Kramer, who otherwise known as the Jigsaw Killer and who uh, looks looks up to Kramer as some as essentially a visionary and this individual is very much interested in continuing Kramer's work with the very uh, precise target of corrupt police so this this mystery figure is tracking down corrupt police officers snaring them into traps in which if they wish to go free and carry on breathing, they have to do some horrendously injurious thing to themselves or they will die. And Chris Rock has to uh, like crack the mystery. He's partnered with uh, a new greenhorn and uh, who's like, oh, you know, you and your dad, you know, you're such heroic cops, you know, like, let me help you do this shit. And, you know, he's like, he meets up with his dad and like, there's flashbacks that... You know, let us know that his dad wasn't very impressed with how he sold a lot of dirty cops down the river, even though that's he's a policeman of integrity. His dad should really be proud of him. But it's like, no, he's bringing a shit storm down on himself. He doesn't realise it's not that clean cut, blah de blah blah So I tweeted about this film and said, it's as if somebody, it's like, what if Serpico was, was a horror film? Mm -hmm. and, Which uh, doesn't sound bad in theory. 
Uh, well, it, it, I mean, it sounds interesting in theory, but so, so yeah. just to be clear, like um, you may have covered this already, and if you have, I, I apologize. But so this, we're not dealing with jigsaw here. No, no, we're dealing jigsaw, with a, a, a copycat. Yeah, jig, in in the in the Saw universe, Jigsaw is dead. Right, he's long dead. So I yeah. missed that. Yeah, sure, the, but okay. the, yeah, and this is a cop. So did I. To be honest, it's just <laughs> just reading the, the, the um substantiate that. But yeah, somebody who has reverence for Jigsaw is uh, making mincemeat out of corrupt cops. Well, you know, more accurately, presenting them the choice of being horribly mutilated but alive or dying an excruciatingly painful death anyway as punishment for their abuse of office. Right. And Chris Rock has got to get them bot get to the bottom of why it's happening and keep himself close and those he cares about close, lest this maniac target he or them. So that's the setup. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, there's about three or four sort of major elaborate set-piece death scenes in this film. You know, uh, the the uh, the traps that the killer uh, ensnares these bent coppers into. Uh, the one down the train tracks, the very first one, they progressively get more impressive and intriguing than that. And uh, I was actually quite... I, I was thinking to myself, I, I really... I do like... I appreciate the imagination that has gone into this. Above everything, they are showcases for completely unmitigated gore. But there's, I thought that there was a lot of uh, ingenuity and a lot of, uh, you know, lateral thought and cleverness that went in to these contraptions. So th that, that element, that specific element, had me thinking, oh, you know, you know, somebody's been using their brain. This is a lot pretty grisly, elaborate stuff. I'm enjoying it. Everything else sucks. <laughs> Everything else was so bad, man. Number one, Chris Rock was just not right for this. You know, the, after the aforementioned grisly opening, it cuts to Chris Rock in an undercover operation. And he's do he's essentially doing his Chris Rock persona. He's talking, he's he's basically talking about Forrest Gump. He's offering a critique of Forrest Gump in the kind of uh, you know, expletive ridden, quasi-misogynistic for a laugh way that only Chris Rock could really do to elicit a laugh. And that is kind of funny. But then the remainder of the film is Chris Rock squinting really hard like this, or he's seen something horrible, and he goes, no, no, no. And it's basically that for about two hours. Um, Samuel L. Jackson is completely wasted. None of the other actors, could, they, they just can't, they can't deliver a performance to save their lives. I just found none of these people believable whatsoever. And um, everything from the cinematography right down to the soundtrack very, very rote, very unremarkable. So nothing, nothing eye catching. So that's interesting because ordinarily you wouldn't look at a Saw film in any sense like it was supposed to be believable. But from the setup you're giving on this one, it seems like this is trying harder than the other Saw films to be believable. Is that the issue, would you say? That unlike the other films, it's trying to be believable and failing? Well, I just judge it. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely not trying to be a comedy. It's trying, and it's not trying to be a. You know, it's not trying to be a schlocky thriller which has its tongue planted firmly in its cheek and is extremely self-aware. You know, it's like you know, if, if if the film was like saw the parody and was set at a summer camp, then I'd I'd take it very very with a pinch of salt and I'd sit down with popcorn thinking this is going to be a laugh, sure, probably yeah. intentionally a laugh. I mean, that's what a lot of people no, watch the saw films for, isn't it? Yes, yeah. for the the gory. Schlocky, yeah. fun yeah. element. Sp Sp Spiral is taking itself seriously as a gruesome crime thriller, 
or is attempting to take itself seriously as a gruesome crime. The, what's, what Spiral essentially is, uh, it's not really, I wouldn't really compare it to any of the previous Saw films. I would say it is very much the, uh, it's like Seven, the Asda Price version. Right. It's just, you know, really real hokum, um, a plot twist that is very, very hammy leaves itself wide open for a sequel in the clunkiest of ways, actually. It's one of those, it ends really abruptly. Mm. And, you know, in a way that is explicitly obvious, um, oh, a, a sequel is being shoehorned, you know, that we are not done with these characters yet. At least, at least I hope for its sake and just for the sake of some sort of uh, aesthetic continuity that that's what they intended Otherwise, it's really fucking bad. <laughs> you think, okay, if they're you, if they're doing that as a way of signalling a sequel is nigh, okay, then you know. But I mean, either way, it's terrible. But um, if they just ended the film that way and it's self-contained, it's even more terrible. But um, yeah, this was just uh, this was just a really, really dreadful film. But I was pissing myself laughing all the way through. I was pissing myself laughing. Oh, so there is some schlocky entertainment value. No, 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 no. I was pissing myself laughing at things that you were not supposed to be pissing yourself sure, laughing okay. at. Sure, okay. But they're so bad it's good, maybe? Um, I, I would actually say to people, watch it, because I did find it, I found it really funny. I found it really funny in ways that it was clearly not intending whatsoever. Chris Rock's performance is hilarious, and it, it's not supposed to be in any conceivable way, shape, or form. So uh, yeah, I, that I mean, sounds like it might be a good time to me. Yeah, but if you if you want an intelligent crime thriller, if that's what you really if you you like, the, I really want a smart crime thriller mystery in the vein of Seven or even the First Saw, or you know even branch out, you know go you know for films like you know Cure. I believe that's a Japanese film and a lot of Korean stuff. If you want you know a, a cerebral and brutal um, savage crime thriller with a mystery tangent to it, and and that is all you will tolerate, then you'll probably leave this feeling quite angry. That's, I, I had hoped that's what it would be, but I got a load of unintentional comedy as a surprise. So am I going to watch it again? Likely not. But Chris Rock's facial expressions alone, along with a lot of the absolutely appalling scripting, I was I was la I was laughing at it in a very unpleasantly mocking way, <laughs> but uh, you know my laughter was mean spirited, but it, it was laughter nevertheless. Yeah, yeah, fair so, enough. So um, yeah, as as a once off, if you like, if you and your buddies want, you know, you want to sit around with your beers going, you know, should we do you want to see how hilariously inept this fucking piece of dog shit is? If you're going with that attitude, I guarantee you, you will get a lot of chuckles out of it. So it's not, I'm not actually going to, no, I'm not going to caution. I'm not going to say don't watch it because it is worth a watch for all the wrong reasons. Fair enough. So, yeah. And then, uh, yes, next up, I believe this is another picture that was brought up in your film news not too long ago. I watched um, Wrath of Man. Oh, the Stafe. The new Guy Ritchie film starring Jason Statham. I believe this is their first partnership in a little while, isn't it? Uh, since Revolver, apparently. Since Revolver. Yeah. So, what's the, I mean, what was that like? Sixteen years ago, that was two thousand and five. Roundabout, yeah, yeah. So, this is a, uh, a remake, actually, of a French movie called Cash Truck, and um, I'm aware of the original. 
And uh, this is Guy Guy Ritchie's US set reimagining of it. But it's a US set reimagining where, thankfully, Jason Statham is retaining his natural accent. That's always a good start. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. doesn't attempt the absolutely dreadful, quote-unquote, American accents that he has done on screen in the past because they don't sound like any American I've ever met in my entire life. <laughs> so, Stafe is a limey in The Wrath of Man, as he is in real life. And um, he is a Mr. Patrick Hill. And uh, the film opens as Patrick is uh, going for an interview at uh, an armoured car vehicle outfit. I think they're called Fortico. And uh, they are tasked with um, transporting hundreds of millions of dollars here and there. And they are subject to countless robberies. You know, at one, at one point, one of the characters says to him, "Like, you know, we're not. You know, you have any fucking idea how dangerous this job is? You know, we're not the we're not the predator. We're the prey. We get jacked all of the time." And the film actually opens with a rather grisly um, robbery. And uh, so it's yeah, it's like the the the, uh, the life of an armored armored truck crew is, uh, you know, if you want a nice, quiet life and you hope to live to see retirement, it's probably not the kind of job you want to be taking. It's not the job for a quiet life. It's pretty grim. It's pretty brutal. They get hijacked and a lot of them get killed a lot. But um, Patrick Hill, or H, as uh, he comes to be referred as throughout the majority, he's a very mysterious man because not only is he English, he doesn't say much. And even though he's introduced to uh, Bullet played by Holt McKellany, a fellow driver who immediately takes, um, he takes very warmly to H. He's very friendly to him and he offers to show him the ropes. Uh, Bullet is very, very chatty and he's pretty amiable, just a nice guy, um, someone who seems very good to introduce the, the, new, the new ones to. Uh, H is uh, very, very emotionally unreceptive and uh, he becomes even more, say, f- silently frosty when introduced to the likes of... Uh, Boy Sweat, played by Josh Hartnett. I haven't seen him. Sorry, say it again. Uh, Josh Hartnett's character's name is Boy Sweat. Boy Sweat. Yeah, they have all these nicknames. Like Jason Statham is H. He's a. It's dawn- very Guy Ritchie. Isn't he's it? A, it's two yeah. Bob and one two. He's a, he's adorned with the nickname H by Bullet, and then you not have, Bullet Tooth Tony. This no, is no, just Bullet. Bullet. Yeah. And then you have uh, Boy Sweat, played by um, <laughs> Josh Hartnett, and uh, a few, and then. Um, Eddie Marsan also turns up as the sort of the floor manager of this armored truck company. So, I mean, Eddie Marsan as a Stepney boy, his American accent is not half bad as it goes. But uh, yeah, H uh, immediately draws the ire of several colleagues, uh, mostly Boy Sweat and a few others. Like, who is this fucking limey? What does he want? Why does he just come out of nowhere? Blah, 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 blah. And so they're teasing him and they're, you know, saying, like, oh, he won't be able to do this job. Like, you know, he won't fuck, you know, what does he know about it? He's from England. He doesn't know what it's like to fucking, you know, drive these armored cars full of millions of dollars of cash across the streets of America. Fuck this guy. But um, H and uh, Bullet and Boy Sweat are out one day um, making a transportation when they get hijacked by um, a car full of thieves. And everyone starts panicking. Bullet is taken hostage. Boy Sweat is crapping his pants. H looks at Boy Sweat and goes, well, you can fucking stay or you can fucking go, but we're not fucking leaving him behind. And then uh, H climbs into the back of the van. He throws the doors open 
and he takes out his service pistol that the armored car crews are issued, and uh, H proceeds to mercilessly neutralize all of the thieves and get bullet back in one piece. And they go back. As only Jason Statham can. And they go back to the offices and people are like, fucking hell, this guy, you know, he comes out of nowhere. He's a me. He barely passed his uh, marksmanship test when he was in the shooting range. And suddenly he's just mullered all of these thieves without a scratch on him. And he's done it in an extremely fast amount of time. What the fuck? Uh, But H doesn't offer anything about himself. The next time they get stopped by um, a truck of thieves, H gets out of the back, um, removes a cloth from his face that he's using to offset smoke inhalation from an explosive that's gone off. And when one of the balaclava thieves sees H's face, he goes to the rest of them, everybody back in the fucking van, get back in the fucking van. And they drive off. H's employers are even more bewildered. And a lot of the people who, a lot of H's colleagues are going, Okay, right, this is getting beyond a joke now. Who is this guy? Why are the city's career criminals? Why are they terrified of him? Where has he come from? What the hell is going on here? And then from that point, we start to um, divert into flashback territory. So it goes five months earlier, three months later, three months earlier. Basically, we go right back to uh, H's auspicious beginnings as a man very, very unlike the individual that his colleagues take him as. He's got a lot of baggage that he is obfuscating for extremely good reasons. And we come to learn that not only is H a very, very dangerous man, uh, he's also a man with uh, an extreme grudge against certain people for very good reason. And so his joining of Fortico Armored Truck Company is uh, one small step in an elaborate retribution plan. And that's where I'll leave it because I don't want to give anything else away. Um, I actually found Wrath of Man to be a really enjoyable action thriller. Guy Ritchie, most people would typically think, okay, it's Guy Ritchie. It's going to have Guy Ritchie's quintessential humour, piss-takey British humour, blah 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 there's a, there's a couple of moments of levity, you know, mostly in the form of banter, but this film is predominantly played as a straight revenge thriller. And even though Statham is not <laughs> subverting his status as a one-trick pony, what he, he, what he does do is completely service what this role calls for, which is a laconic badass who looks believable when he fires guns and beats the shit out of people. The little surprises and twists in H's journey that we become privy to as, you know, we see more of his history. I actually think that it's quite nicely handled. This film doesn't reinvent the wheel in terms of plot developments when it comes to crime films, but the way that it gets there, the the little narrative mazes it goes through, I actually sat back and I thought to myself, this, this is enjoyable. It's enjoyable the way they're doing this because they're not just settling for a typical, you know, Statham plays Johnny Badass from such and such and his best mates, like, leaves him for dead. So he's got to tool up and he, oh, he hooks up with his gorgeous bird over here and she's going to help him go after her. Blah, 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 blah. It's none of that whatsoever. This film is, thankfully, it's completely bereft of romantic subplots, which is very, very nice to see. So as I said, it doesn't reinvent the wheel. It is very much 
an action thriller for the sake of being an action thriller. It's not heavy informatic content, but it's written in a far tighter manner than your average statum audience-pleasing hokum. And it's also, I also really like the way it presents the criminal as essentially your anti-heroic everyman. Now, I'm not going to, it would be extremely shallow and a misnomer to draw comparisons to something like Heat. But the most superficial comparison you could make is that the for the most part, the organized crime tangent in Wrath of Man, none of them are, really, are particularly good or bad people. They're just people who... They want to make a living. They want to make a very large amount of money in a very short amount of time. And for the most part, they only want to do what's necessary. But obviously, you do have villainous tangents who fuck with Jason Statham and they you know that they're going to learn the hard way. But in summary, Wrath of Man is, is very entertaining. Uh, it does some very cool things uh, narratively. I, I liked its style. It's a Ron Seal jobby. It's gonna, it'll, it'll pass the time. It's fun. It's satisfying revenge. You know, give it a, give it a spin. Yeah, that you sounds know. surprisingly good. Actually, I think I shall. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's just it's it's rote entertainment in the best way. Excellent. So yeah, I do like a good stealth, you know, yeah, a yeah, tight one. Anyway, it's like, it's it's a it's a good stealth vehicle, man. Okay, then. Well, this doesn't bring me on to TV of the week this week because I have been away, so I haven't had time to watch a full series of something to review. I decided instead, because we are primarily a film podcast, to review a film. A film. A film indeed. And the film I decided to review, it's a big release out at the moment, and it's entitled Cruella. Oh, it's got Emma Stone in it. It does indeed. Oh, I like Stone. Her. Yes, she's a very good actress indeed. We've rated her many, many times on the podcast. And this is, of course, the origin story of the infamous Cruella Deville mm. from the absolute stone cold Disney classic 101 Dalmatians. So, plot set up, here we go. Uh, we start out in the 1960s in rural England, and we meet not Cruella, but Estella Miller, who is a young girl at this point in the story. She's played by um, Tipper Sievert Cleveland. Amazing name, that actually. Say that again. Tipper Sievert Cleveland. Wow. Yeah, yeah, great name. I'm, I'm sure we'll be writing, reading and writing a lot more about her <laughs> yeah, as the years go on. But yes, she is a young Estella, and she's living with her mum in a single-parent family in a small rural village. She's got black and white hair, um, completely separated down the middle. One side is white, one side is black. And she considers herself to be a bit of a child prodigy and a genius. And her mother is very, very careful to try and sort of tamp that arrogance down in her and make her nicer. Occasionally, she can get a bit too irascible and a bit too temper tantrumy. And so her mother's nickname for her is, or oh, you shouldn't be called Estella, it should be Cruella. Ah, oh, see what they did there. Yeah, see what they did there. So anyway, she gets sent off to school and she has a pretty hard time of things, really. Uh, not least because of the fact her hair is different colors and two different sides, but also because she's a bit of a rebel. She's a bit kooky. The other kids don't like her much. She ends up getting into a lot of fights at school and getting herself into a lot of trouble. And she is eventually expelled. So her mother decides, right, we're going to pack up, pack everything up in our tiny family car, and we're going to go off to London to start a new life there. So they're on their way to London. And her mother says, uh, along the way, I need to make a quick stop. And she pulls over at this huge mansion on top of a cliff. And as they arrive, there is this big ball, this big costume party event 
happening at this mansion. Everyone's dressed up in sort of, it's kind of one of those eyes wide shut sort of parties where everyone comes in sort of Victorian and period costumes, uh, masks on sticks, you know, that sort of high class ball. And she says to Estella, wait in the car. Um, I'm only going to be a minute. While you're here though, look after this for me. And she hands her this necklace with a red ruby in the center of it. Says, you put this around your neck and hold onto it tight for me. This is a family heirloom and it's very, very important and you need to keep hold of it and protect it. Wait in the car, I'll be back in a minute. So the mother goes in. Estella, of course, being the irascible young child decides that she's not gonna wait around for her mum and she sneaks into the party. So she's sneaking through all these very fancy and obviously very rich and ostentatious people having their lovely ball gown party. And she's rumbled. One of the security guards played, well, actually one of, his character comes in later on anyway, but it's Mark Strong anyway. Oh, I like him. Sort of head of security at this point in the story. Like Mark Strong. He spots that there's this young girl running through the party that very obviously isn't supposed to be there. And um, she begins to run away. And she is chased at this point by three very vicious and snarling Dalmatians. And as she runs through the party, she breaks out onto the balcony and she sees her mother in the distance at the edge of this clifftop balcony, standing talking to a mysterious woman whose face is not shown. And Estella's running away. These dogs are giving chase. She jumps over a bush, falls down. The necklace falls from her neck. The three dogs bound past her, run into her mother and knock her off of the cliff. Yes, you read that right, or you heard that right, rather sentimentalist. Corella Deville's mother was killed by three Dalmatians. Well, no wonder she hates them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, you could have written that on the back of a napkin, can you? Anyway. <laughs> so, Estella, now absolutely distraught at seeing the death of her mother and the fact that it was her fault because the Dalmatians were chasing her. She runs away from the party. She jumps on the back of a van and she hitchhikes all the way to London, where she wakes up the next day, sans necklace, the necklace was left behind, wakes up the next day on a park bench next to a fountain. It's one of those London fountains that people throw coins into. Right. And there are two rapscallions about her age in this fountain, fishing for the coins with a little fishing net like you use for shrimping or crabbing or something like that. Their names are revealed to be Horace and Jasper. (laughs) Two young London (laughs) rascals helping themselves to the coins out of this fountain. They are spotted by a policeman who gives chase. So she runs along with these two boys and they escape into this neighborhood rundown slum loft that they're living out of. And she reveals to them that she has lost her mother and they reveal that they are in fact orphans too. We cut forward in time to Estella is now played by Emma Stone and she is living with Jasper and Horace in this loft. It's now 70s London, and they are making their lives as a gang of thieves together, pulling off small-scale heists, taking basically pickpockets, taking people's wallets and things out of their pockets on the bus. They're making a small town living out, out of that. But Estella constantly looks at this very luxury department store that they keep passing in London that does all these high-end dresses, these sort of boutique prints, and she looks at it longingly every time they're near it when they're doing a score. So Jasper, on her birthday one year, gives her a letter saying that she has been accepted for a job at this department store. He has basically wangled their job application system to get Estella a job in this fancy department store that she keeps lusting after. So she begins to work there. However, unfortunately for her, it's not the uh, fashionable life that she dreamed of. She's pretty much reduced to cleaning the floors and wiping the windows and that sort of thing. And she's looked down upon by everyone else and there was just a bit of a ragamuffin that shouldn't be working there in the first place. One night, she's forced to work late to continue cleaning the store. 
And she ends up getting very, very drunk and altering one of their window displays. So rather than showing a chic fashionista mannequin with a dress of the time, she does all these drawings on the wall, smears her name in lipstick across the window on the outside, puts rips and cuts into the dresses and makes this, this sort of art piece out of it. Sounds like something by Damien Hirst. Yeah, along, or Tracy Emin would probably Horrible, be, would be closer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, she wrecks this display, but actually makes it kind of punk and kind of beautiful at the same time. Store manager comes in the next day, finds her passed out in the window, uh, goes, right, you need to come with me. You're for it. You're absolutely fired. Unfortunately, at that moment for him, the Baroness arrives, uh, played by Emma Thompson. She is a fashion mogul in very much the Devil Wears Prada, Meryl Streep thing going on here. She's a fashion mogul. She designs dresses for the store. She turns up and says, what's going on with your window display? Who did that? And of course, she's not actually angry. She loves it. It's the most interesting thing they've done in years. So she tells Estella, you are hired. And Estella goes to work for the Baroness and her fashion label and become a designer for her. Um, She's particularly nasty and vicious and horrible to her staff. But she takes a shine to Estella because Estella's got some genius. She's got some spark, a little bit of punk to her. She's a dickhead like her. Essentially, yeah. So (laughs) keeps her around as her assistant until one day, Estella notices that the Baroness is wearing the necklace that was the family heirloom that she lost when the Dalmatians knocks her mother off of the cliff. So the film then becomes about Estella attempting to get back at the Baroness and pull off a heist, essentially, to get this family necklace heirloom back. And much continues from that point. Are we sort of up to speed on that? Just about, I guess. Yeah, it's at this point that the film devolves from um, Devil Wears Prada into something approaching Ocean's 13. Although there's more reveals made of the plot from that point onwards, but I'd be going too deep into it. I feel like I've rambled on for too long already, and that, believe me, is part of the problem with this film. Okay, let's start off with the good stuff. Um, It looks great. It looks really, really good. The art design is fantastic. Uh, It's got a sort of a punky style to it because it's going through the 60s and 70s Britain. It's got sort of a splashy aesthetic mixed in with those sort of old Victorian cobbled streets. And, you know, when you look back at the footage of London in the 70s and the punk movement starting, like that's really done in a a vivid, bright and good looking style. And there's some real nice set pieces in this as well that look really, really fantastic. Uh, There's a lot of good performances in this as well. Uh, Emma Stone is pretty good. I have to say, as Estella slash Cruella. Um, She has a bit of a problem with the accent, I think, because Cruella and Estella have different accents. As Estella starts to become Cruella in order to sort of create a caricature of herself to get back at the Baroness, she creates Cruella as almost like an alter ego kind of thing. She speaks differently. And actually other characters point out that her voice is different. She's got more of an affectation to it in order to create this character. So she's essentially, Emma Stone has to go between two different British accents. And unfortunately, occasionally a little bit of her American accent seeps through. Just a tiny bit, not too bad, but otherwise her performance is great. The real star of the show here is Emma Thompson. As well, her full name is Baroness von Hellman, which is the, the most cartoonishly evil name you've ever come across, isn't it? But she, yeah, she's essentially doing Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada. And she's doing a very, very good job. I've never been particularly big on Emma Thompson. I think it's more to do with her personal, I, I, I don't know, anyway, but she is a fantastic actress and she eats the role for breakfast. She's really genuinely good. Also, I want to give a shout out to Joel Fry as uh, Jasper who plays it really, really nicely, actually. He actually. He's pretty much one of the only characters within this that's actually got some nuance to him 
and Joel Fry plays it that way as well. So some, there's some really, really good pieces of acting in there that actually end up tying the film together okay. That's the good stuff. Let me get on to the critique. Um, first and foremost, the comedy. And I use comedy in inverted commas because this is a film that is peppered with what it thinks is comedy, except just about every joke for me fell flat. Um, a particular note, I was just going through some good performances there. Uh, Paul Walter Hauser plays uh, Horace, the second part of the bumbling duo. I oh, know that guy. Yeah, he's been in some good stuff, actually. He's been in I, Tonya, which is the same director as this, actually. And he was very, very good in that. I've seen some great performances from him. He's doing the comedy bumbling sidekick, the Hardy to the Laurel. The big, the big fat guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The big the, fat guy, but yeah. he's doing a Cockney accent, or at least what he thinks is a Cockney accent. <laughs> Uh, I spent most of the film trying to figure out what his accent was, actually, because what he does in order to do, he tries to do a Ray Winston thing where he tries to put a lot of gravel into it. And what's weird is you can hear the accent start to go. Like, he can only hold it just for long enough to get a take out of it. So what you end up getting is... And occasionally it goes with this bit West Country, oh, my lover. And then it comes back around and at points, it was very nearly good day, mate. How's it going? <laughs> Put another shrimp on the barbie. It's really, really Fucking all over the place. Hell, mate, he makes Charlie Hunnam look like Gary Oldman. Yeah, it's an, <laughs> it's an accent he can barely hold on to. And that's quite distracting. I think the jokes basically don't work. But the biggest problem this film has more than anything else, the, it runs through it like diarrhea through a sorbet, is it's conceptually broken. And I'll tell you why. Let's talk about Corolla Deville for a minute as a character, as we know her from 101 Dalmatians. She is a character who's the only thing we really know about her is that she's into fashion and high living. That's made very obvious from her aesthetic. And she wants to kill a bunch of lovable puppies in order that she may make a coat out of their skin. Glenn Close. Woof, woof. Uh, that's what I think of when I think of, she, I think of her as a psychopath. Yeah, she's <laughs> quite possibly the most villainous of Disney villains. I yeah. mean, that's a, a real sadistic character trait to have. Yeah. The film can't decide where it wants to land on that because what they're trying to do here, obviously, is take an antagonist and turn them into a protagonist by giving her this tragic backstory and by softening her and giving her, giving her a bigger bad than she is. So if you make an antagonist worse than the antagonist, the lesser antagonist becomes the protagonist. That's what they're trying to do here. Except there's nothing redeemable about Cruella de Vil. So what you end up with in this is a Cruella that's actually nothing like the Cruella in the original Disney film, which means, I mean, everybody's seen 101 Dalmatians and it doesn't line up. There's a moment in the film where she wears a coat of white fur with black spots on it. And the characters actually have a debate about as to whether she killed Dalmatians in order to make that coat. And then it's revealed that, no, of course she didn't. Of course I wouldn't do that. I think it completely breaks, there's a complete dissonance there because you go, yeah, look, Corinna Deville would exactly do that thing because we saw it in 101 Dalmatians. You're trying to make her really likable and understandable. There's even like some fourth wall breaking stuff where she goes, oh, I'm not a complete psychopath. Not yet, anyway. And you just sort of roll your eyes really hard at that kind of writing. I mean, this is one of those films that to me, screams that it was written and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten. And the reason they had to do that is because the concept is unsound in the first place. It's not possible to take a character that sadistic and dark and turn her around to be likable and somebody that you root for without breaking the character in the first place. At the very least, you can't do it within the Disney constraints of making it a family-friendly film. If you were going to do a Corella Deville backstory film, you'd have to make it a hell of a lot darker than Disney would allow you to go. 
And so the film is just broken as a result. It's also way too long. It's over two hours, this. And um, Emma Thompson's Baroness, one of her character quirks is that if she doesn't like something on the dress you designed, she pulls a razor blade out and she'll like slash the sleeves off or whatever. It doesn't need those. And I kind of wish she did that to this film because you could easily, I mean, I'm telling you, easily lose 15 minutes of it without changing anything about it other than making it better. I would argue, in fact, it could do with losing half an hour of it because there's a huge middle section, a good half an hour towards the end of act two where just barely anything happens. Filler bollocks. Yeah, and it completely and utterly fucks the pacing. I mean, a lot of critics have really dogpiled. (laughs) (laughs) Completely unintentional, that one. (laughs) A lot of critics have dogpiled onto this one. Quite a few critics have liked it as well, but a lot of the big critics have really slaced it as being awful, trite rubbish or whatever. I don't think that at all, actually. I think it actually really does genuinely have some merit. But I think conceptually, they were never, ever going to get away with it. It doesn't work on the most basic of levels. Some of the writing is really phoned in as well. At one point, Emma Thompson has to deliver the line with a straight face. Ah, I see. It all makes sense now. And I'm sorry, if that line's in your script, go back and write it again because you didn't try hard enough. There's also a little reveal twist at the end where you're supposed to think Cruella's dead. And this is no spoiler, by the way, because nobody's going to believe that Cruella's dead. She's obviously coming back. But there's a a little conceit where it looks like she might have died and then she comes back and you're like, how did they do that? And there's a flashback as to how she did it. Believe me, if you asked a five-year-old how she did that, they would have come up with a more inventive explanation than what they end up doing in this film. It's really lazy writing. I mean, the, Cruella doesn't like Dalmatians because Dalmatians knocked her mother off a cliff. Is I, you know, Writing with your own suggestions is how Cruella could have a better backstory than that because believe me, they will be better than that explanation. It's, it's really got problems, but it's not an awful film. It's a broken film. There, speak, there, there is a difference. They, they've, they've made an origin story for an iconic arch villain and they've dispensed with the focal nefarious traits that makes that arch-villain that arch-villain. Yeah, and there's a whole subplot about she ends up realising that Horace and Jasper are her real family and she needs to be nicer to them and not order them around so much, which is the lesson she learns throughout the film. But then that doesn't make any sense because in 101 Dalmatians, she's terrible and horrible to them. Isn't that, isn't that so like, we, we all know that she doesn't learn the lesson that the film is trying to say she's learned the lesson of. That's like having an origin story where Hans Gruber says at one point, well, I would never be a thief or terrorist. Yeah. You, you're just completely extricating what makes that villain I, that villain. I understand why the writing is broken in so many points in this because they were given an impossible task. This isn't underneath the Disney umbrella, the Disney constraints of making it family friendly. It's not possible to do Cruella in a way that makes sense with the Cruella Deville that we all know. We know what that character is supposed to end up like. To make her likable and to make her a tragic, misunderstood soul, and you could do it, but not, not like this. Not like this. <laughs> you said they're doing it to fit the constraints of uh, family-friendly viewing. Yeah, and it, and it's, it was just never going to work. That's not good one. enough excuse. I, I, I don't want to go too hard on it, though, because there is merit there. There are some good performances. There are some okay ideas. There's some great art style going on in it. And there's some okay set pieces as well. But writing-wise, it was just doomed from the beginning. And that's very, very obvious when you watch the film. Well, that's so, pretty unfortunate to hear. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go. I've, I've seen some other critics go, oh, it's absolutely awful, terrible, worst thing I've seen all year. And I really question your motives on that one because it's not that bad. Like I said, there is a big difference between an awful film or a bad film and a broken one. And this one's just broken. Fair enough. There you go. Can't say I'm particularly interested in seeing it. But. Mm, yeah, that's, 
I've seen much, much worse this year. You know, there are there are some there is some merit there. There really is. Mm. Anyway, trivia this week. Um, oh, I went for Jason Statham. Jason Statham. Well, he's had um, you know, he's had a storied career, man. He's done a lot of stuff. Mm. You know, not just uh, in terms of cinema. He's done. He's had like a very eventful life. He's done a lot of shit. Yeah, there's a, a bit of trivia on the Stafe. I won't mm. do it like this, but it's very tempting. Stafe. Yeah, Stafe. Still better than Matey's British accent. <laughs> Start off with this bit here. Before becoming a big screen tough guy, Jason Statham exuded grace and fluidity as one of the world's top competitive divers in the early 1990s. He spent 12 years as part of the British National Diving Squad, highlighted by competing in the 1990 Commonwealth Games in Auckland, New Zealand. Though he was an elite diver, Statham never qualified for the Olympics, which he admits is still a sore point for him. I started too late, he said of his diving career. It probably wasn't my thing. I should have done a different sport. Not bad. I mean, if, if diving wasn't really your thing and you got to like Commonwealth Games level, I mean, that's, that's pretty damn good, isn't that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, no, he's good. For all the authenticity that Statham likes to bring to the screen by doing his own stunts, sometimes things don't go according to plan. While filming an action scene for Expendables 3, the brakes failed on a three-ton stunt truck Statham was driving, sending it off a cliff and into the Black Sea. If you've ever wondered if the real Statham was anything like the movie version, his underwater escape from a mammoth truck should answer that. It's the closest I've ever been to drowning, Statham said on today. I've done a lot of scuba diving. I've done a lot of free diving. No matter how much of that you've done, it doesn't teach you to breathe underwater. I came very close to drowning. It was a very harrowing experience. Fuck. I didn't even know about that. Brakes fail on a truck and you go off a cliff. That's a bad day at the office, isn't it? But he's still here. He's still here. <laughs> when asked by his squire if he ever watched one of his movies during the premiere and thought, oh no, his response was very self-aware. Yeah, I think I've said that more often than not. Yeah. <laughs> he went on to rattle off his Guy Ritchie movies, The Bank Job, Transporter 1 and 2, not 3, and Crank as being among his favourite films. As for the others, the actor joked, and the rest is shit. <laughs> <laughs> But you, know, you gotta love that. Haven't well, you? I mean, I've I've always had a soft spot for Statham, and like there is something there where you know a, he's a, a lot of his uh, his approaches. You can tell that there's a very subdued, dry, British humour there. Mm. There, he's flying the flag for all of us when he's making his a lot of his crazy, shitty Hollywood productions. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> Producer Matthew Vaughan drove to the Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels set in his brand new Porsche. And when he left, he heard a terrible clanking sound coming from his car. He took it to a mechanic, only to discover that Jason Statham had filled his trunk with horseshoes. Well, just because. <laughs> oh, what a card. What a card that Statham is. <laughs> <laughs> I like this one just to finish off with here. Statham's films may have a tough time impressing critics, but audiences and studio executives can't get enough. Taken as a whole, Statham's filmography has raked in more than $5 billion worldwide. A lot of this is due to his more recent entry into the Fast and Furious franchise, but he's also had seven movies cross the $100 million mark worldwide outside of that series. This isn't an accident. Statham knows exactly what type of movie keeps the lights on, as he explained in an interview with The Guardian. He said, So if you've got a story about a depressed doctor whose estranged wife doesn't want to be with him anymore, and you put me in it, People aren't going to put money on the table. Whereas if you go, all he does is get in the car, hit someone on the head, shoot them in the fucking feet, then yeah, they'll definitely give you 20 million. You can't fault these people for wanting to make money. 
And he is still and has been for a few years now one of the most bankable stars on the planet. I like that honesty in him as well. Oh, like yeah, totally. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a silly action flick. Look, but like you were saying about Wrath of Man, that sounds like one of his successful ones. Because they are, when they're right, they're right. He does make that role work really well. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and he and he fits it. He fits it because, you know, he's he's a growly, muscular guy. Thank for, and when he retains his English accent, it works so much better. And fucking, oh, I'll tell you what. That man's nearly 54. If he doesn't look amazing. For yeah, he's in incredible shape. He's kept himself in, he looks like he's in his early 40s. I mean, he's, push. he's pretty much the modern day Bruce Lee, isn't he? I mean, he does all his own stunts. He's martial, very adept at martial his arts. His martial arts qualifications are unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, I think, the most qualified actually. Can, genu- can, today, can genuinely move very fast for such a, for such a fucking tanked guy which and there's something really believable scary. about him when he does it as well because he's got that authenticity to him yeah. because he he does we look capable of yeah. doing it and got guy Ritchie cast him as bacon because of his history as a market stall trader mm. in that in that opening of like you know you'll be crying tears as big as october cabbages he, this this was like uh, jason statham improvising and just like sounding off the kind of stuff he used to say to people in london market stalls and stuff mm. and so yeah he's uh, yeah so he's been a scuba diver he's been a market trader he's been like fucking he's done a lot of stuff man yeah yeah well, there you go. That's the end of my Jason Statham trivia the for Stath. this week. And the end of this free podcast as well, actually. We need to get on and record the premium content. If you're interested in checking out our premium stuff, please do check out cinementalist.com for a link to our Patreon page or just Google Cinementalist. It'll be one of the first results that comes up. Uh, this week on the premium, we're going to have a chat about, well, essentially some of our favorite films from the decades past. It's a bit of a free-for-all chat this it's week. A bit, yeah, it? it is because, um, yeah, the sort of... Basically, the, we haven't bothered to write one. Yeah, from about, <laughs> from about 60s onwards, and think because I was thinking about this earlier, like, there's some very, very obvious picks to go for. And it's like, I mean, the ones that I've got, they are, they are personal favourites. And, I mean, I suppose we could talk about big titles in there as well, but it's, I don't know, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a tightrope, really, because... Yeah, we're, we're essentially just going to go through some of our uh, top picks and highlights going decade by decade and some films we haven't had a chance to talk about before. Yeah, so sort of stuff we fun. might be repeating again just so you go and fucking watch them. <laughs> <laughs> so if any of that sounds good to you, please do check out the premium stuff. You can follow us on Twitter at Cinementalcast and you can follow Liam at... I'm Liam at the movies and I'm at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. Excellent. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. Anything to add, Liam? No, thank you very much, people. Hope you enjoyed the content as always. Hope your COVID vaccines aren't uh, making you drop like flies because <laughs> uh, we want you to come back. Yes, yeah. So, um, yeah, just uh, stay safe and take it easy and enjoy. Excellent. Okie dokie, guys. Uh, hope to see you on the premium stuff. If not, free one next week. Take it easy. <laughs>